Welcome everybody to this Professional Practices Alliance webinar. So what are we talking about today? We're talking about partner performance management and remuneration systems and how to deal with underperforming um, partners and overperforming um, high achievers as well. So the focus for today um, as our entry point is how to deal with those twin headaches. Um, so the over-rewarded underperformers and the underpaid high flyers. Um, so the structure and objectives of this of this webinar with our lovely panel will be dealing with what the practical steps will be to deal with the issues in the short term and how to identify um, and avoid the common traps that firms often have to deal with in these kind of scenarios. Um, and how some of those underlying structural market related reasons um, that you might want to address and over the medium and long term. We'll also be um, delving into some of those uh, cultural issues and how that has an impact and might affect your room for the manoeuvre and how you actually deal with those um, underperformers and high achievers. And then before we kind of start, I'd like to, as any good lawyer does, start with a few defined terms um, that will be banded around um, just to kind of um, clarify things. I'm sure um, most of you will be aware of these, but we'll be um, um, talking about lockstep. Lockstep is the kind of system and remuneration system that largely depends on the longevity of partners and how long they've been in the firm. Um, we'll also be talking about, on the other end of the scale, merit-based systems, which are purely based on how much a partner contributes in terms of financial um, contribution. And then there's um, the hybrid systems, which are anything in between those two extremes. And um, our panel will be talk going into those kind of different systems in more detail later on. Um, so I'm going to, at this point, introduce a poll, which Jan Daniela, our loveliest marketing assistant, will put on the screen. As I said, we'd love to have your participation as much as possible. So we'd like to take the temperature of the room and thoughts on what your current remuneration systems are and how they deal with underperformers and overachievers. So be grateful for your answers on those. And in the meantime, I will introduce our lovely panel. Um, first off, we have Corinne Staves, who is a partner at Maurice Turner Gardner. Um, Corinne is a, a partnership expert and um, advises many firms on their constitutional documents and um, how they reflect the remuneration systems in their policies and partnership agreements. Um, next up, we have um, David Shovelbotham, who is a remuneration con consultant at Pep Up Consulting. Um, and David advises many law firms and other professional services firms on their remuneration systems and partner performance management processes. And last but not least, I have my fellow partner from CM Murray, Beth Hale, who is a partnership and employment expert and who deals with a lot of firms, uh, partnership disputes relation in relation to remuneration as well as other matters. I'd like to first ask the panel just to tell us what their main focus will be in, in this discussion today. Corinne, do you want to kick off? Zulon. Um, well, pretty classic answer from a lawyer, I'm afraid. The rules, Zulon, um, we've got some really great sort of perspectives here on the panel. So my, my focus is going to be looking at sort of the constitution, the rules, how to kind of create a, a default framework and get those documents to support and promote your objectives uh, rather than um, kind of when you go to the rule book, you, you find that there's nothing there to help you. Thanks, Corinne. David? Yeah. Thanks, uh, Zulon. I'm going to be talking a bit about market context, one of the 
going over the reasons for what we're seeing as a large scale shift towards more performance based profit sharing. And uh, later on in the session, talking about how to describe and evidence the sort of partner performance that you're after um, and using appropriate KPIs and, uh, and other data points. Thanks, David and Beth. To counterbalance Cohen, I'm going to be talking about the application of the rules and how you can how you can use the rules best to uh, to implement your your objectives. Thanks, everyone. And Daniela, if you if we could have the result of the poll, if we haven't already had it, um, fantastic. So um, the first question: How well does your partner profit allocation system deal with higher flyers? Um, so we've got ten percent of people saying poorly, forty three percent adequately. Well is 29% and unsure. On that question, certainly, um, the, the majority of people seem to think either it deals with it poorly or adequately fine uh, or, or they're unsure. On the second question, how does it deal with profit allocation for underperformance? And there seems to be a clear majority saying poorly which is interesting because these are exactly the issues we're going to be talking about and how best firms can actually deal with these two issues. Great. Thanks, Daniela. So let's kick off with our first issue. So you realise, and we realise from the responses from, from those two questions, that a lot of firms need to do something perhaps to address the underlying structural issues that perhaps their profit sharing systems might throw up in relation to underperformers and overachievers. So where do you start with that, David? Thanks, Ulan. I'm going to share my screen now. So hopefully you've got uh, got my slides up. Can I have a little nod from those on That's screen? Good. Lovely. Excellent. Always a worrying moment, that. Um, yeah, so I'm going to talk you through, you know, why has there been this shift uh, in our market towards uh, uh, more profit, more performance-related uh, profit-sharing elements, uh, and why um, you might be feeling that your current system, historically, uh, that you've used and used to good effect, is starting to come under strain. So I'm just going to give you the, the, the headlines on that for sort of four or five minutes uh, to set that market context. And first point is, is to emphasize is that what I want to emphasize is you're not alone. If you're feeling this and you're feeling these twin headaches of, of the issues and dealing with underperformers and high flyers and their flight risk becoming more and more prevalent and you're having to deal with it more often. You really aren't alone. And that, that's, that's because of a few reasons. So let, let's look at the spectrum of profit sharing and profit allocation uh, systems that you might use in a common in the market. So you've got a spectrum ranging from equal sharing. So in some firms of, of sort of small and medium size, you, you, you will often end up with a situation where actually through a lockstep system, you'll have a lot of partners actually at the plateau level, and you end up with a default equal sharing system given to you by, by, by application of pure lockstep. Um, but really, these are, these are about risk sharing and, and reward pooling as systems. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, you've got this sort of very sort of formulaic uh, set of systems pure formula, E-W-Y-K, eat what you kill. That's the the, um, the abbreviation on everybody's tongues every day of the week. I know that. Uh, all over the internet and social media. Um, and at, so at that end of the table, it's much more individualistic. So equal sharing or pure lockstep, um, historically prevalent in, in UK and Western Europe. And it's about that 
ability to pool risk and also pool your reward. At the other end of the system, uh, system spectrum, it's much more individualistic. It's almost at the extreme level, like a chambers model of sharing uh, expenses and historically prevalent in, uh, in the US. So um, the important thing to say here is that, of course, all of these models can work and they do work well. You will know firms that employ these different models, at, even at the two extremes that work well, if, it's, if the market context is right. Um, However, what's been happening is that there's been a shift away from uh, the equal sharing and pure lockstep end of the system in our jurisdiction as the market has changed. Um, so what, what's been happening? Well, what we found is that lots more firms have been ending up in this middle ground. Now, there's some terminology here. I call them managed lockstep and managed merit. Um, but it's a very, very broad church that managed lockstep we lost David. I've lost yeah. him too. Yes, Corin. While we while we wait to while we wait for David to rejoin yeah. us, perhaps you could kind of um, give us your take on this and what you see from a um, advisor on on the legal side, um, how you kind of implement any changes to partner remuneration systems and. Um, firm policies and partnership agreements. Great. Well, thank you, Zulon. And we do start with the partnership agreement because that's the sort of, as, as I say, sorry to use the word rule book, but it, but it's true. It's where you have that default system, um, default set of sort of principles and rules, and, and it's how you sort of shape um, the the framework to help you achieve your objectives. Now we're assuming, uh, following David's comments, that we've sort of worked out what the objectives are that you're seeking to achieve, and then you need to think about how your partnership agreement does that. Now, obviously, getting the kind of the provisions around the reward system um, right are, are really important. Um, and, and that goes without saying. But, but in addition to those sort of remuneration provisions, um, you need to think about how much flex is there in them. Um, do you need flex in them? Because on the one hand, that's useful because it can sort of adapt to different circumstances. But on the other, how many exceptions do you want to create? Are exceptions helpful? Um, if you create an exception, then that's a precedent. And if you don't start following that precedent, then um, as Beth will point out, you're going to have people asking why they're being treated differently. Um, is there something untoward at play? Or, or indeed, it's just difficult um, because you, you sort of tie yourself up in knots and you have partners understandably asking, why is this happening when X or Y happened to, to my peer? But beyond the remuneration provisions, we also need to think about sort of the broader picture. and the kind of the extreme answer to what if remuneration doesn't fix this is maybe you have to kind of fix the situation. Now, fixing the situation beyond just changing the remuneration is coaching, is mentoring, is offering different types of support. Um, so there's lots of um, what we might commonly refer to as softer ways to kind of address things like performance issues, issues around contribution, um, if there are kind of behavioural issues that need addressing, um, even things like counselling might be appropriate in some circumstances. But let's assume that that neither the kind of the reward structure nor those softer options can, can help address that. Then I think you do have to think about ways of exiting underperformers from the business. Um, there you might, you'd need a power to expel. Now, I use that very, very hesitantly because obviously a power to expel is a very sort of draconian uh, outcome. It is an immediate power. It usually, it usually describes some sort of serious behaviours that require that person to be exited from the business um, immediately. 
I wouldn't think that's appropriate in most of the circumstances we're talking about here. But, but just pausing on that for a moment, conduct issues might be. Uh, 10 years ago, people would have been sort of quietly hushed out of the door. Uh, now, I think rightly, um, serious conduct issues should be dealt with uh, appropriately and giving that person a, a significant notice period or sort of a payoff as such might not be appropriate in, in the circumstances where conduct is one of the issues that you need to address in terms of underperformance. So, so I, I add that into the mix just for consideration, but, but I think it's probably one where we don't need to focus. I think it's really important to have the power to remove without cause, um, sometimes called a red socks clause. I had gorilla gun used the other day. Um, so, so one of those powers where in theory, you don't need to give a reason for somebody leaving. Although obviously when you're thinking about the application of natural justice, you really need to make sure that you have appropriate grounds and that power isn't being abused. Otherwise, I think we would talk about demoting people. You might say, well, we'll demote you from equity to fixed share. We might talk about demotion from partner to say consultant or um, back to sort of salary partner. But obviously that type of demotion from partner to consultant or um, salary partner, that is expelling somebody, removing somebody from partnership because they're, they're no longer part of the partnership. Um, so I think we're going to need all of those powers, but, um, and I'm sort of lining Beth up here, but bear in mind that these powers need to be used appropriately um, and, and they can't be used um, inappropriately. Thanks, Corinne. Uh, and I'll come to Beth in a bit, but um, we're, we're grateful that David is back. Thank goodness. <laughs> Welcome back, David. Um, I can't remember when you left us. <laughs> so do you want to? I'll, I'll, I'll reprise. And, and, okay, so I'll, I'll share my screen again. I hope we uh, get better luck this time. Um, hopefully, I'm back. So where where I left off, I think, was saying that um, we've got a lot of hybrid systems, and and really, why is that shift going on for away from our traditional basis of equal sharing and pure lockstep? Well, it's because variation in partner contribution has gone up over time, and that sits much more comfortably with a more flexible and more performance-led system of profit allocation as opposed to the more fixed way of doing it under a lockstep or equal sharing because under those systems you've got very little room for maneuver to reflect higher or lower performance and you might say well david but we've had variation in contribution you know throughout the history of of, uh, of law firms and that's true and the lockstep has worked well there and that is still remains true where that um that variation has been cyclical and that's a very natural part of risk sharing within a, within a partnership. So that still goes on, but what's been happening over time is that the variation in partner contribution as the legal profession has moved from profession to business to industry, what's become embedded is the structural variation in partner contribution. And there are a number of reasons for this. I'll quickly go through them, but very quickly. You will, you will understand all these if you work in this industry. So first of all, firms have grown. Um, more practices, more partners, more locations, that means a natural variation in levels of contribution. Next, clients have become more sophisticated. They will not pay the same amount, the same premium for, um, for all areas of legal practice. So they've just disaggregated um, legal advice and they say, I'll pay you X much for this and Y much for this. And thanks very much for that. And that you'll see that hugely in, in private equity terms, right at the top of the market. Some of the, the, the levels of remuneration people can command up there uh, are really driven by, by clients. 
Um, but they're all, it's also driven and exacerbated by the fact that there are new business models out there. People have got more options. It's easier to set up in competition. There are more firms offering more money, more firms offering individualized reward level packages, and lateral hiring has become normalized. So where you've got to in the industry is, a, is for most firms, equal sharing or pure lockstep in our market and our legal industry has become an uncomfortable place. And you do get these problems of being able to deal with underperformance if you haven't got the right provisions and the flexibility in place and the high performers. They've now got options to go elsewhere and um, and, and clients are, are also driving us. So it's pretty potent, um, pretty potent mix. Thanks, David. And do, I mean, you, you see a lot of different systems being implemented by firms and in, in my experience as well, no two systems are ever the same. Um, whether it's law firms or the other professions, and they're very bespoke to each partnership. Um, which kind of systems do you often see work well than others in terms of rewarding high performers or dealing with those underperformers? Well, it's, it's good to have a system that has some flexibility built into it. But the key thing about that flexibility and how you manage that partner body is that all of that system has got to be aligned with um, your strategy, your business imperatives and your culture to make it work really, really well. That, that flexibility, to use that flexibility and for that to be felt fair by the partners, it's got to be aligned with how they want to see the business run. And that is really critical. So some flexibility, absolutely necessary. The degree to which you need it and you operate it will depend how successfully will depend on on strategy and, and, and culture. Thanks David. So let's get into some of those practical steps that you can take when um, the kind of scenario we, we've kind of presented the the, the underperformer and the, the high flyer um, when those kind of scenarios manifest themselves and so you've got the you've got a disgruntled high flyer threatening to leave the firm and a range of other partners grumbling about um, a senior partner who they feel is is no longer pulling their weight what are those kind of first steps and Corinne you kind of um, touched on those earlier um, uh, and the powers that you need and, and the partnership agreement um, so Beth um, do you want to expand on what Corinne mentioned around um, the the exercise of say um the power to demote an underperformer or de-equitize them or even um uh, uh, uh exiting them if, if they become um seri uh, seriously underperforming yeah sure thanks so i think i mean i absolutely agree with cohen that the the having the powers in the deed and in the constitutional document is fundamental and that's your sort of basic building blocks it's, but i would say it's kind of necessary but not sufficient you also need to apply them properly, apply those principles properly and consistently. And the, the difficulty is, is marrying up the consistency and the flexibility, which David so rightly talks about. Um, so firms should be trying to make sort of data-driven decisions. So you need to be, you need to have documented your grounds, thought carefully about what those grounds are, think about how, how you're applying them to each individual. Um, how confident are you in those decisions and in that data? How confident are you that you're correctly identifying underperformance or indeed high performance? You know, someone might be a high flyer in one area. They might be delivering um, very easily and really tangible um, uh, high performance in, a, in financial terms, but less 
less um less high performance in the sort of less tangible what what we slightly reluctantly I call the softer stuff because it that that sort of downgrades it a bit because I think it's you know it's incredibly important but I think you know you need to, you need to make sure that you're making those decisions based on on actual data and and David will come on later to how to measure those those other skills which are I think you know it's harder because you you know you've got an obvious output from financial metrics um you which is harder to you know and those softer bits are definitely harder to measure but you need to make sure that you are confident in your data confident in your decisions and confident in the basis on which you're making those decisions so then think about with an underperforming partner has there been any communication have they been told do you have a proper appraisal system evaluation system in in place where people are informed about issues with their performance rather than it coming as a surprise and that's both the legal issue that it's harder to harder to do harder to Im implement any decisions if you haven't got that background but it's also a you know people are less likely to you know it's it, less likely to argue less likely to fight decisions if they are properly communicated and they feel that they've been treated fairly so it's, it's a legal and a sort of um strategic um issue i think is the high flyer widely recognized as a, it, it, someone might be viewed as a high flyer as i say because of financial metrics but are there other issues which are perhaps hidden or perhaps not not recognized you know look look beyond the immediate obvious um metrics think about how how other people have perceived perceive them think about how uh other staff not just partners but think about potentially you know how associates see them in the firm how how they're viewed and how they manage their other things as well as financial metrics um and then finally think really carefully and also really creatively about are there any protected characteristics are there any discrimination risks here you can be sure that if there is a fight the lawyers acting for whoever that individual is who is fighting will be thinking pretty creatively about how they can how they can leverage any potential discrimination risks so think really beyond the the sort of obvious and think about what what potential protected characteristics or discrimination risks there might be um you know are there people working part time are there people who have caring responsibilities which you might not know about but just think about what those are what those might be think about reasons for poor performance um you know is there is there an underlying illness that you may or may not know about or that you should know about and just think think really carefully about why what the underlying reasons for any poor performance might be um and and how that impacts on your decision making so it's a real like there's I, there's a lot to think about and and i think um documenting and data is really really important hey, thanks beth um uh, just a question on how to deal with the high flyers. If what if, if that high flyer is threatening to to walk out the door, how can you stop them? Um, whether it's by giving them a, an extra share of the profits or something else. Corin, is there anything that maybe you should build into your partnership agreement to allow you to do that so that firms can react to those kind of um, um, threats? It's a great question, Zulon, and I think sometimes firms need to be brave. Um, in the sense that if you have a system, say a lockstep, for example, the rules are there and the rules are agreed and therefore making exceptions can be deeply damaging over the long term. But that goes to David's point about flexibility. What sort of flexibility do you need in your system and do you want in your system and is desirable in your system? I mean, there's two schools of thought. I mean, some apparently some cultures um, regard high flyers, even if they're exceptional performers, 
um, as unhelpful to the culture because it sets people apart. Um, you, you sort of you hear those sort of anecdotal examples, don't you? And so you know, high flyers are exited from the business despite the, the kind of the contribution that they're making, but because it unsettles the rest of the kind of the, the, the organization. Now, I don't advocate that. What, what I think is what you need is a system to accommodate that. But I think that it's, it's going to be damaging for a firm to have um, a person whose needs are pandered to, um, if I can phrase it that way. So sort of having that flex to be able to accommodate it, but also having sort of a, a strong strong management and a strong sense of culture and what everybody is in is in it together so that 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 sense of somebody thinking I am better than everybody else if, if that's what we're seeing here because it's all very well making a fantastic contribution we, we, we all know those firms are a fantastic contributor in the firm and if you said to them maybe you should have a bit more they say oh no 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 I don't deserve it what you want is a firm full of those people who are high flyers but see themselves as one of the gang what, what we're really talking about here is those high flyers who see themselves as special and, and they're probably the very difficult ones. And, and so it's a mix of having the tools and the flexibility in the system. I think there's a huge role for people management there as well, because those individuals can be disruptive. And, and I mean, you sometimes hear partners saying, maybe this person shouldn't be in our business, which is a very odd outcome to be contemplating, given the contribution that the person is, is obviously did you want to mention yeah and i wanted to pick up on a theme corin mentioned there about being brave and i think that that is part of that people management piece and one of the things that i always recommend to my clients is to say okay well you're having trouble with this high flyer they're 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 a flight risk they've got offers on the table and they're way above the top of what you're paying at the moment what is it that this person actually brings to the firm what can we get behind what their contribution is are they a bit of an island? Um, if as, if they float off, will it do you any damage at all? Are they really, really connected and uh, interconnected into your client base? Are they one of those people that's got fingers in so many different pies across the firm that other practices rely on them to generate that, that income? And then once you start getting into that, um, and hopefully in, in, if you've got a good system for evaluating partner contribution already, you'll be 80% of the way there, but actually taking the time to look at the data that pretty much all firms have got these days, no matter how big or small document management systems, telephone records, client records, that you've got to hold. If you do a little bit, bit more digging, you can work out whether the, whether the threat is worth um, pandering to, um, because if it's, if it's a proper integrated bit of your business, then you, you're going to take a different view to if somebody's just a massive biller, but they're not connected very well with, with the rest of the business in, in, in that case, you know, and I think that's part of, part of being brave uh, is knowing your stuff and, 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 and being prepared to, to take action on, on, on what you find. I think, sorry, that comes back to what the, to, I think we're all agreeing that what I was saying about, you know, are you correctly identifying the high flyers? What, what, what constitutes a high flyer? Um, it's not necessarily just about their billings. It's you know there, there's so much more to it than that, and and that culture piece is so important that you know everyone everyone being sort of in a club together, which after all is sort of the basis of partnership, isn't it? So thanks everyone. Um, right, so let, let's move on to our kind of next topic, really. Um, so you've kind of we've talked about the two ends of the spectrum, the lockstep and the eat what you kill system. Uh, and if you're at one of those uh, one of those ends of the spectrum, you might be thinking about actually, well, 
that system is no no longer working for me anymore. And Corinne, maybe you can mention the, some of the statistics we've had um, on, on the move, move away from lockstep. Um, so you've come to that conclusion and you want to kind of move to a hybrid um, style of profit sharing um, with your firm with a greater emphasis on performance in the profit allocation. So how do you go about putting that in place? Um, and Corinne, maybe you can start off with um, giving us the the kind of um, the high level overview of how, of, of how the market has moved over the last decade or so. Thanks, Elon. Yeah, I think that um, in the UK market, and we should sort of focus down on the UK market for this particular conversation, um, there is data that was produced by surveys um, conducted by the Association of Partnership Practitioners that showed that even as late as 2011, uh, the vast majority of firms, I think in the sample that they had, which probably wasn't statistically significant, but nevertheless, it's interesting, around about 70% of firms operated something resembling a kind of a pure lockstep model, maybe with some sort of bells and whistles around the edges, but fundamentally sort of wedded to that lockstep model. But in the last decade, that has shifted massively. So the kind of the most recent data that was available, um, I think that they they uh, the, the same question asked um, produced a result that's um, can't find the, I think it was 23% of pure lockstep, no, no, 19% of firms in that in that survey um, had a pure lockstep. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, only about 20% had a pure merit-based system. So what we've seen is that we've moved from those two extremes into something in the middle, which in, in, in my experience is a mix of lockstep to reward those kind of collegiality, um, collective endeavor kind of following and promoting the firm's success, you know, avoiding individualistic behaviors, plus sort of that kind of merit-based element to be able to pick up on, you know, exceptional contribution year on year um, and, and not necessarily financial performance, although obviously that's an element and how people measure that hybrid element is, 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 is a question we're gonna come on to, but we are seeing that shift. I suppose we could say in Americanization because traditionally the US firms um, have, operated a very strongly merit-based uh, approach. Um, but I don't think it is due to the influx of US firms. I think it's genuinely because of the factors that David highlighted before and the UK market just changing over the last decade. Thanks, um, thanks, Corinne. Um, I'd like to put up a, our next poll actually, just to again, get a sense of, of systems operated by our firms um, represented by our audience. Um, so, and so there, there are two questions out there. So how well is financial contribution measured at your firm uh, and how well is non-financial contribution measured at your firm? Um, so while we kind of wait for the audience to respond to that poll, we'll come on to um, our kind of um, the, the next stage on this in terms of kind of changing your system itself. Um, uh, so Beth, uh, how would you kind of go about um, kind of implementing this as a as a structural reform to your um, partnership partnership remuneration system? I think the first thing to do is clarify where any of this sits. Does it sit in policy in a partner handbook or in policy and elsewhere, or does it sit in the actual um, those building blocks, the constitutional documents? Um, obviously much harder to change the constitutional documents and you need buy-in from partners and you're like depending on your constitutional documents you're going to need a vote you're going to need you know it's, you're really going to have to it's a it's a much longer process and it's a it's a you know you've got to take the partnership with you and that's that's a sort of 
complex process to do, but worth it if if you if the ends justify the means. Um, if if things are contained in policy, you have a bit more flexibility. You may have a, a um, management committee or a supervisory committee who can change those policies and can introduce new remuneration structures. But I would still say that even if you don't have to go through the voting process, even if you don't have to change the constitutional documents, you really want the buy-in and the support of all the partners and, and the to, to push that forward and to drive that forward. Where you're changing anything, particularly um, how you know what people take home at the end of the day, um, you really want to make sure that everybody is on board and everybody understands the reasons and the drivers behind making those changes. And David, you kind of often advise firms from a strategic perspective. I assume you kind of identify what the problems are with current remuneration systems and try to address that. And in my own experience, I always see changes in remuneration systems being an evolution rather than a radical revolution um, because that's often very hard to get over the line in terms of partners getting on board with it. Uh, what is the kind of direction of travel that you're seeing in the market? I think with the the points you made there you know, are really important because people really experience these problems. They see them and they feel them within the business. There's, um, um, there's a, there's a John Stacey Adams paper back from 1963, which talks about why people get demotivated by reward levels. And it's all about how they feel treated to relative to everybody else. So relativity is key. And money isn't in itself an intrinsic motivator, but it can be a real demotivator if you think that your contribution versus your reward is out of kilter with what your comparators are getting. And that's why you see firms where you think, my goodness, they're already earning eye-watering amounts of money and they're worried about a, a, a £15,000 difference between them and, and somebody they see as a comparator. You think it's, it's minuscule compared to what they earn, but it's real. So those problems really come out and what you've got to get, as, as Beth has just said, just to really reinforce that, you might have the power to do it. So you might, in your, you know, in your deed, have delegated partner evaluation mechanisms and approach to the executive committee. They might be able to do whatever they like against that. Whereas in the constitutional document, you know, in the constitution itself, the profit allocation bit might remain, you know, you can't change that apart from on a vote. But it is really, really difficult to get any sort of change in that evaluation of performance mechanism, unless you've got the partners with you. And the, the thing I always say to my clients is, look, you've got to have a degree of co-creation here. You've got to have the partners really give you input as to what it is goes into that system. And if you can get over that step, okay, give them guide rails. So if you're an exec committee or you're a managing partner that you know you need to change things, by all means, provide the guide rails. And the guide rails should be formed by your strategy, your business imperatives, and your culture. Give them those guide rails and say, right, what does good performance look like in, the, in our business? And if you can get that sense of, actually, this is something we believe in, um, you'll get a long way to having a system that will address those problems. Because the partners, they're really good at doing this stuff once they direct their mind at it. But all too often, um, they feel they're being done unto rather than being part of the process. And I think that is, that is really important that it's not imposed because it, you'll get pushback, you'll get tissue rejection. Uh, and especially once it comes to implementation, it might get nodded through a, a couple of um, rounds. But when it comes to actually saying, are we really going to do this? 
you get pushback if they haven't been uh, involved and adopted it. So, so that that's the key thing for me, Zulan. When those problems come up, when it when they become notorious, and you've got the grounds to start to address them, make sure you involve the partners, no matter what the with the power, what the explicit powers you've got, exercise them judiciously. Uh, and 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 Beth put it really well. You know, there's a tactical and a strategic approach dealing with the partnership on on these issues. Thanks, David. Uh, and in terms of crafting the right kind of constitutional um, framework for your remuneration system and performance appraisal process, Corinne, it, it, again, in my experience, I find that building in trust, transparency and flexibility is the key. Um, so do you want to kind of talk about how what you see in terms of governance, decision making, um, and processes that you kind of um, uh, see firms putting into their partnership agreement or their policies to to ensure that they create you know create that trust and transparency and flexibility. Mm, of course, thank you. And, and can I just build on that last point that David made? I think that the, the points that he raised around the difficulty of implementing change because ultimately you're varying. I'm sorry to take it right back to the fundamental legal question: How do you change it? Well, it's the power to vary, and there's going to be a certain threshold to do that. And, and I, I was looking at the attendee list, and I think it's it's quite relevant to sort of the types of firms that are listening in today, um, that, that not tiny firms, but not ginormous firms, that kind of firms in the middle where everybody knows everybody else, but it's it's a bit bigger than everybody's content with what's going on. So there is that sort of um, lack of visibility across what everybody's doing, but it's still very personal. It's like a family because the firm is small enough. And... Quite often in a number of firms, we see a split between equity partners and fixed share partners. And in that circumstance, you quite often see that the power is vested in the equity partners rather than when you're thinking about voting power, particularly on fundamental decisions. And that can be quite unhelpful because often these are about creating more equality, about incentivizing the next generation, about succession planning. And therefore, sort of, we get back and we use the phrase in the sort of the planning notes that we have here, the turkeys voting for Christmas, um, that the equity partners often are the more senior partners, the people that have been there the longest time. Are they going to give up something for the people coming through? It's quite a difficult decision to say I'm going to give up something for the next generation of people because I've only got X number of years left in my career. But well, whatever age those people are, I've got X number of years left on my career. Um, I, I want to be earning at the maximum amount I can. So saying, well, I will you know, give something up in order to sort of bring through that next generation and to sort of promote that sort of objective um, is, is quite difficult. But, you know, you talked about transparency and trust. Everybody has to be united behind the idea that it's for the good of the firm. And if it's for the good of the firm, then everybody wins. Even those people who feel like they're giving something up, if you get a whole bunch of incentive, if all the partners are incentivized and motivated and sort of running in the same direction, then we, we often talk about the pie. Well, the pie will get bigger. So even if you get a thinner slice, it will still be a massive amount of pie. So I, I think we, we need to sort of think about those dynamics because they are quite difficult. I think as a practical matter, you need to win over those decision makers, but I don't think it's necessarily by giving them what they want. It's about sort of you know making sure that everybody's aligned behind it. And then really to your point about governance and decision-making, I think that whatever, achieves the objective is the right answer but that's a bit fluffy and doesn't help anybody draft it I think that you need to get a balance there I think that there's an argument for concentrating it into a smaller group um, it's not a helpful um, not helpful for the partner body to be making decisions about reward um, say for example you have a, a bonus pool or decisions around 
Gates and so on and so forth. And maybe Gates is a bit of an exception because in the smaller firms, but, but genuinely it's going to be the management teams that have a better handle on it. They're going to, you're going to be able to concentrate that down into a group of people who are looking at the data, can apply it consistently, who have an understanding of precedent uh, and, and who, who might, for example, be aware of personal circumstances that might influence people. You wouldn't necessarily share that across a wider partner body, particularly in a larger firm. So I think it is right to concentrate that down possibly into the management team. Some firms might feel that's not appropriate. They might want a separate remuneration committee. But if you've only got 25 partners, you know, lots and lots of committees is unhelpful. Um, and you've got four different committees, you know, an evaluation committee, a remuneration committee, a bonus pool committee. You do see firms sort of doing that. So I think try and keep it simple. But I do think concentrate it down into a smaller group of people. Possibly if the partners want it with a, a kind of a rubber stamping exercise where the partners do agree the kind of the decisions of the remuneration committee or management committee but I think that management has a role to play in making sure it is a rubber stamping exercise because if there's a matter of practice the partners question and change and, and, and amend what that decision making process and I think that can be much more damaging <laughs> with having it changed after the event than if, if the partners had done it in the first place so I think it's it's getting the balance right thinking about the size of the firm the dynamics within the firm and if you do have a remuneration committee for example making sure it's representative of say the whole partner group rather than just equity partners or just management members and thinking about conflicts of interest and those sorts of things. Thanks Corinne uh, and very quickly Beth is there anything in, in that kind of governance framework that might be a red flag um, in terms of say discrimination risks? and that firm should be watching out for. Yeah, so I think I just go back to the, the point about think about that really um, carefully and in detail. Don't don't make assumptions. Um, and I think that the sort of diversity in the remuneration decision-making body is really important and, and, and also making sure that, that there aren't sort of pockets of knowledge which aren't then conveyed into the remuneration decision-making process. So, you know, if one person knows about someone's particular caring responsibilities, for example, that, that that kind of information has to be sort of shared appropriately and within, you know, um, respecting confidentiality, but um, with with those making decisions around remuneration to, to minimise the risk of, um, of discrimination claims. I don't want to make it sound like it's sort of permanent litigation risk. It's not just about litigation, obviously. It's more about culture and respecting people's personal um, situations. So it's... it's true, though. Like you will you will find people objecting to changes to their award system because they've always wanted a coffee machine on the second floor of the building and they haven't <laughs> had it and they will use that power to pursue their own agenda. So I, I think you, you're, you're right, uh, Beth, to raise it. Thanks both. Uh, and I agree, having that diversity actually creates the trust. Hmm. Because if, if, if the partners see, see, don't see themselves representative, represented on, on the body of people that make those decisions, they won't have trust in that process. Yeah, and I think that's really important also for, to, to, for the sort of um, succession and those kinds of, you know, the, for succession planning, for bringing in laterals, but also for promoting people within to create that trust at partner level, if people can see that that trust exists at partner level, they're much more likely to want to buy into that partnership. Let's talk about culture a little bit more. Um, so obviously the saying that sometimes your remuneration system either reflects your culture or, or it can create the culture. Um, so which way is it, David, do you often see? <laughs> uh, thanks for that, Zilan. Um, I think in terms of um, culture, I, I, Culture to me is 
just what everybody does every day or and what everybody doesn't do and and how they go about doing it so uh, remuneration systems are really important to this because what they embody is what's really valued and rewarded in the business now we've all seen businesses and clients where their remuneration system and their evaluation system will say one thing but actually everybody knows that it's not that that's actually valued and rewarded so you need to make sure that what you're doing is aligned with how you want to be as a firm. So the things that you measure, the things that you actually end up valuing and rewarding need to be the things that you um, want to fulfill your strategy and to reinforce the positive elements of your culture. That's really easy to say, but it's really, really difficult to do. Um, But I think as a management committee or the managing partner, senior partner, Uh, whichever way you're doing it in your size of firm, I think that's what you've got to keep on checking back against all the time. Every single provision, does this actually allow us to meet our strategy? What are our business imperatives at the moment? Um, How is our culture going to work? Um, I I often say actually about culture is that your culture is perfectly calibrated to produce your current outputs. So, and that's, that's got to be true. So it's, it's like, oh, okay. So if you want to change your current outputs, which is the only reason you get somebody like me involved, really, you need to change your culture. But in order to change your culture, you've got to change what you do. So you can't, you can't say we're going to change our culture. You've got to say, well, how are you going to set about doing it? And some of those things that, that you haven't maybe addressed in the past have got to be addressed. Some of the things that people might feel uncomfortable and will say, oh, this is totally countercultural. Say, well, actually, that's a bit of our culture that we've got to decide whether we match ourselves to it or we dispatch it. So, you know, there are some big, um, big decisions to be made along the road here, and and they are often uncomfortable. Um, And and that's why the good governance bit, the taking the partners with you is, is so critical. But I think if you've got your senior partner, managing partner, and whatever executive team, if you've got a partnership council, them as well, they keep all that in mind, that whatever they introduce has got to be with, with those things in mind. Thanks, David. I, I think I skipped ahead a bit, a bit ahead of myself because I forgot to um, um, tell you the poll results of our last poll on um, how well is financial contribution and other contribution measured in yours? It's quite interesting to see that quite a few people see financial contribution um, measured very well um, uh, or well enough, uh, which seems to be the overwhelming kind of response there. And in terms of non-financial contribution, um, it seems to be the overwhelmingly, it seems to be not very well um, or uh, not well at all. which is not surprising, um, is it, David? Maybe you want to give us a quick thought on that. Uh, I mean, I don't think any of us are surprised by that. No, uh, I think that's that's true, and I think that people feel that um, in, you know, measuring non-financial contribution. Uh, I, I, I hate the way we have to talk about it as non-financial contribution. Everybody knows what we mean. It's the broader contribution that is the investment in the future production of the business. So it's stuff that doesn't necessarily come out in the in the financials now, but will come out in the future and is an essential part of building your business into a successful and sustainable one. Um, and you can measure it. You know, there's 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 a whole um, raft of things that I use. You know, if you look at if you're measuring people and talent, for example, just give you a few examples of things that you can use in these, you know, 
people regard them as more difficult to measure areas. You can measure them. It's just you 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 set, you you're not going to measure them from your practice management system. You know you can look at um, you know how what's the record of partner associate and partner promotions. What's the turnover? Um, how many career reviews and conversations have been held? Um, you've got performance metrics around charge time, profitability, recruitment costs, and then you get onto using expert evidence. You know lawyers are very good at using expert evidence in court, but they they often run a mile from it when you say, oh, well, maybe you should get some input from uh, your HR director. Oh, I'm not sure the partners would, would feel comfortable being uh, evaluated by the HR director. Well, they're the subject matter expert. So what's their input? You know, um, what's the peer client and team feedback? Um, what engagement has there been with recruitment, for example? So even just stream of consciousness um, there are loads of data points and loads of inputs that you can use to really sort of uh, make these evaluations robust. And um, they're more difficult to, to measure simply because um, it's not all out there in front of you in the practice management system. You have to look a bit further. But if you apply a value and, and, and a reward to them, if you explicitly say, we are going to give this element a, a chunk hypothecated chunk of value in how reward is decided, partners will start asking for you, how are you measuring it? And then that gives you the opportunity to go out, look for the data that you've got and create other data sets that you haven't yet got. So it's really important if you want it and pe people say they want it, you've got to be prepared to go out and look for it. Absolutely. And that really kind of, um, those non-financial non contributions are, really kind of embedded with your cultural purpose, um, which brings me back to the culture question. And we do have a poll, a final poll on this for our audience as well, um, on how well do your key performance indicators promote your firm's culture and purpose? So we're great to kind of know your thoughts on that. And we wait for the answers on that one. Um, uh, I do have a couple of other questions for our panel on, um, do you kind of need to match or even actually dispatch some elements of your culture when you're looking at your reward system. So there might be parts of your culture that you, your current culture that you want to change perhaps. And how do you do that through, through your remuneration system? Um, Corinne, do you have any thoughts on that? I think, I think that, that yeah, that's, that, that's one of the aspects in terms of, of doing it, but you can't force, uh, to, to David's point, you can't force a culture upon a group of people. There has to be buy-in uh, you have to sort of have the partner group decide what it is they're looking to achieve, to achieve. And, and part of that process is how are we going to achieve that because you can't say right well we're going to be this you can't say to a you know an american firm that's had a very merit-based approach suddenly now we're going to do we're going to have you know a collegiate one where we're sort of you know just the firm's success and everybody gets a share of it and by the way we're lockstep now people won't kind of just change because somebody has said it you have to have everybody get together and say well no this is what we're looking to achieve so i think it's it is led by the group of partners and that will presumably evolve over time. But I think one of the interesting things, particularly about organic kind of partner promotions is that the reason people stay and the people that reason that people want to be partners and to stay partners is that sort of glue that they know what being a partner of that firm means and they want to be part of that. And so it's about promoting it. It's about understanding. It, it's about nurturing it when you've got and these sort of systems and processes around them support that and can promote it but it has to come from the partners themselves um, because you can't inflict culture upon a group, a group of people 
Yeah, no, agreed. Um, but there are certain elements of perhaps behavior, problematic behavior that perhaps Beth, Beth might want to um, shed some light on um, problematic behavior that you might want to kind of now eliminate in your partnership, um, whether it's um, partners who are perhaps not as inclusive as the firm would like to think it is. Um, Beth, is there any, any, any thoughts from you on how they might be able to do that through their performance appraisal system or their remuneration system? Yeah, so I think, in a, you know, <clears throat> there are obviously extremes of, of sort of real partner misconduct, um, which I think we're not, this not so much what we're talking about here. We're talking here more about little, the sort of, again, I come back to that term, which I've said I don't like, but I've used a hundred times, the sort of softer stuff um, and how they're, you know, how people manage associates, how people, you um, act out their, their relationships internally um, and how those can be managed. And I think there are ways, as, as, as David has rightly identified, of, of building those into a, a review, a, an appraisal process and rating people on those on those skills. Um, and that, you know, and, and having that have a direct impact potentially on remuneration, on, on how they are judged internally, judged, again, it's a not very nice term, is it? But you know what I mean? Um, and I think that that's really important to build that in and to, and to um, I think Cohen's absolutely right. I really like the idea of imposing a culture, sort of forcing a culture on people. You can't do that. But what you can do is, is build it from the bottom, build that culture by saying, here, you know, here are the things that we all as, as a group of partners, as a firm that we believe in and we want to unite behind. And um, those get built into the sort of performance appraisal and the, and the management structure um, sort of from the ground up. Thanks, Beth. And we've got the results of our poll on the screen as well, which is, again, very interesting. Um, so it seems the majority of people think that um, their current remuneration systems do reflect their, their culture quite well or well enough, um, which is good to hear. But obviously, there are always those kind of niggles that people want to want to iron out in, in their systems. Um, so that's, that's very interesting to see. Um, so what, just one final question, and, and in, in view of the audience that we have as well, um, some of our audience might, members might be thinking, well, actually, this all sounds very complicated for our firm. We're not particularly big, and we don't have much in the way of policies and systems at the moment, but this, this sounds, sounds like a huge undertaking. Is that, is that really, um, is it really difficult to put in these kind of different layers of governance, systems, processes, and um, to ensure that you have the right um, remuneration um, metrics and processes for your partnership. Corinne, do you, do you have any thoughts, final thoughts on that? I, I think that's right. I think simplicity is really important because you need something that's workable and you don't want to spend half of your real year trying to work out how to pay yourselves when you should be focused on clients. Um, so I think you do have to sort of make sure it works, but that doesn't mean that you can't have um, some of those um, elements, you, you could decide that what's right for your culture and your objectives is to have something very straightforward, you know, pure lockstep, for example, if that meets your objectives. So no, I don't think it needs to be overcomplicated, but I think it is worth, you know, evaluating whether what you've got works. And if not, if there are changes that can be made, if it's too difficult or disproportionate, don't do it. But you never know. <laughs> there might be like little tweaks here or there that can make a huge difference. Thanks. And I'm just conscious of time, but just one very quick last question of all of our pet panelists. Um, um, how do you think remuneration systems can um, kind of support and promote a firm's growth ambitious, ambitions? And um, in light of, you know, lots of firms are reviewing their strategies for growth in the coming years, especially coming out of the pandemic, as we've, we are currently doing. Um, David, um, what are your thoughts on that? 
very quickly. I think um, you've got to have a sense of dynamism. So this is what we're doing to get somewhere. And these are the changes we need to make to get there. But doing that in a way that you really socialize it with the partners, get some co-creation going and make sure all the time you're keeping on that alignment with where you want to get to. Align, align, align. Keep them all aligned all the time. And if you find there's something that, that's knocking you off the path, either investigate it or, or, or get it out of the way. Thanks, David. And Beth? I think just building in that flexibility and and ensuring that you have the buy-in and the trust. I think trust is so important. So that's, I would say, yeah, flexibility and trust. And lastly, Corin. Rules, rules, rules. <laughs> Write it down. Um, you know, make sure that you know that that process of committing it to writing is part of the buy-in process. So to get your default framework there, but part of that and, and that process of implementation of the new system can be what gets people behind it and, and can be really useful in practice. Thanks, everyone. Um, so I am slightly over time, for which my apologies. Um, uh, it was lovely to um, have you all here. Thank you for attending our webinar um, and we hope to see you all again very soon. Uh, and thank you for our, to our lovely panellists, Corinne, Beth and David. Um, and yeah, we'll stop there. Thank you very much.